This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is a science podcast for January 7th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First this week, we have science journalist Olga Dobrovitova. We talk about plans to set up a national permafrost observatory in Russia. Then we have researcher Philippa Lentos. She joins me to discuss her insight piece on the dangers of transmissible vaccines for controlling invasive species and viruses found in wildlife. The Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the planet, and it's not just ice sheets that are at risk. It's also the permafrost. Olga Dobrovitova is a science journalist based in Moscow. She wrote this week on plans to coordinate permafrost monitoring in Russia. Hi, Olga. Hi, Sarah. Is permafrost exactly what it sounds like, permanently frozen stuff? Well, at least it used to be before climate change came into the picture. Yeah, it can vary in depth how much ice is in there. So it can be kind of spotty or it can be full-on permafrost. In total, it covers two-thirds of Russia. So that's a huge swath of land. Yeah. And is melting the problem here or warming up? It can indeed melt. But the problem is even if the temperature goes up slightly, the properties of permafrost can change. And that matters if you build something on it. I think this is the biggest difference for Russia as opposed to other countries who have permafrost. We've got a lot of permanent structures built on top of it, roads, pipelines, even cities and towns. So it's not just an abstract issue of permafrost melting somewhere. It can impact people. Right. What happens when the ground suddenly changes its status, when it goes from hard, hard permafrost to soft, squishy dirt or mud? Last year in May, a fuel depot was destroyed in part because the permafrost underneath it was damaged, close to Norilsk. It was partly because I think the conditions of permafrost notice are really poor due to climate change, but also due to perhaps poor management, some negligence. So that fuel depot got destroyed and the fuel leaked into a northern river. It turned it rusty red, really, and it ultimately went into the Arctic Ocean. It was really an environmental disaster. And the company responsible for the depot had to pay quite a lot of money. I think it's the biggest settlement in modern Russian history, at least, for an environmental disaster. And 
this year, in December, they announced they're going to invest about as much money as the Russian government is going to invest in their system. So the Norilsk Nickel, the company, will track permafrost where it matters to them, right? Right. Pipelines, factories, that kind of thing. They're really investing in their own system, too. Mm -hmm. What exactly is permafrost management? Is that something that a city or a town that's built in this kind of region has to pay attention to? If you ever get a chance to visit these towns, you can see a lot of the buildings built actually higher up the ground on some kind of open foundations, a meter or so, perhaps two meters above the ground, so that the building itself doesn't heat up the permafrost underneath it. And those are ventilated, but you have to keep them clean. You have to keep the circulation going. Those are essentially kind of self-cooling foundations for buildings. And there are also techniques to build stuff in the right way on this permafrost. But the problem with this is a lot of the standards that are used in building in the Arctic region come from an age before climate change was a thing. And they don't take these climate change impacts into account. So any redundancy they might have might already not be enough for these buildings. So do you mean that climate change is making things different and so the buildings and the other maintenance things that people are doing aren't as effective? It's like load-bearing capacity, right? How much stuff it can keep stable on top of it. Yeah. All those measurements, all those parameters in the building guidelines were designed especially in the pre-impact era when this was not that visible. Yeah. We're actually seeing some impacts. I know that in the northern towns, some of the newer buildings end up being demolished because they're unlivable, essentially. They start cracking and tilting to sides because no one had considered that this would be an issue, so soon at least. But there is a statewide or a nationwide monitoring effort that's being planned. Yeah. Is it much different than what's been done before to track permafrost in the country? To understand why this is important, you have to go back a bit into the Soviet times where permafrost tracking was really a unified nationwide effort. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of the research institutes went their separate ways. And in the absence of funding for a system, the permafrost monitoring became spotty, which means that if a university or a research institute has some sort of interest in a particular region, they track permafrost there. Some of those organizations feed their data into international systems, such as the uh, CALM network or the GTNP, Global Terrestrial Network for Permafrost, which gathers data from across the world, really. But that depends essentially on their goodwill, right? So if you want to do this, they do this. And most of them actually end up studying the regions that are of interest to them, right? So it's a biased sample, and the coverage is really kind of spotty because you can't really make any conclusions about the general state of permafrost. One other issue is outside these international projects, no one's really sharing the data between them. So companies like Norilsk Nickel usually have their own tracking efforts because, again, they're interested in keeping their investment safe, but they have no motivation, no incentive to share that data. The biggest thing about this particular plan is that the data that is going to be collected since it's government data and the agency in charge is mandated to collect environmental data and share it with users. At least we can count on the data to be accessible. When we talk about monitoring permafrost, what exactly does that entail? Generally, there are two essential climate variables 
It's the active layer thickness, so how deep the permafrost falls in the summer, and also a temperature profile. So you drill a borehole up to 30 meters, I guess, perhaps even deeper than that. And then you put temperature trackers at different depths and you monitor the changes in temperature. Can you talk a little bit about how the monitoring stations will be set up? Ultimately, the task went to the Ministry of the Environment, which delegated it to its Climate and Weather Service. This service, Roshydromet, has a network of weather stations across Russia, and some of them are essentially on permafrost. They will take 140 of those stations and they will add these boreholes to measure temperature. And I think they're hoping at least to start drilling this summer in the first stations. By doing this close to the weather stations, you can firstly combine the permafrost data with weather data. This also helps in modeling and helps connecting the permafrost and the climate system in general. The other thing is you don't essentially have to invest a lot in the infrastructure because the weather station is already there. It's already wired. It's already got scientists, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes rolling out these first stations really that much easier. And I think the third issue is that you get what's called background measurements, which helps establish a baseline of what's happening to permafrost outside these towns and cities where it's impacted both by climate change and management. Right. By having a baseline, you can compare the other more precise, perhaps more detailed measurements, such as the ones Norilsk Nikhil will make in Norilsk. They will have a baseline to compare their data to something and make conclusions about, for instance, attribution, whether a particular event is caused by climate change or just poor management. We should talk a little bit about carbon release from the permafrost that's melting. You know, we talked about shifting foundations, broken pipelines maybe, but there's also this issue that when permafrost melts, a lot of carbon can come out. That's true. I think the stocks there are even bigger than anywhere else, perhaps. It's bigger than the atmosphere, I think, at this point. It's not a priority for this particular system. It's not a stated priority, at least. But the data that the system is going to generate, it can be fed into models that will ultimately predict the carbon sinks in permafrost and the potential to release that carbon into the atmosphere much better. So it'll help people build those models? Yeah, essentially, if that data becomes available, it's really going to help improve on the models. I was told by experts when working on this story that the models these days are really having a hard time pinning down the, the scale of the impact. And the more data we have, obviously, the models are getting better. When we talk about monitoring for earthquakes or volcanoes, there's kind of an alert system built in. Is that going to be part of this? Is this for in-the-moment understanding of what's going on with permafrost, or is it more data collection to monitor over the long term? I think it's more about collecting the data and especially establishing that baseline that we really need. I also visited a permafrost research station in Garka on the way to Norilsk and in central Siberia. One funny and kind of sad thing about this was there was a map on the wall, a permafrost map, which was dated 1985, I think, or something. This was before I was born. And the scientists told me that this is the newest map they can get. There's no better map that would cover the entirety of Russia. There's better data, sure, but you can't really get a bird's view on this. And I think if the system goes forward, there's really going to be a chance to get a better grasp of what's going on. because. That GTNP study that came out in 2019 
this was, I think, one of the first attempts to collate the information about permafrost warming. It actually showed some of the stations in Russia indicating a full-on degree of warming and permafrost. And that's considering the, the scale of the issue. There can never be enough stations. You, you always want more data. You always want more coverage. I think that data will be useful to both track the state of the problem and ultimately adjust those guidelines too. As I said, for Russia, this is mainly an issue of keeping people and buildings and infrastructure safe. This plan came out of a report from scientists that made recommendations. And that report really asked for almost 10 times more money than is being spent. You know, how is this, you know, what is actually going to happen different from what was proposed? That's true. The minister in charge of the environmental ministry, he was previously at another ministry. And in that capacity, he commissioned a report, which was done by really the leading permafrost scientists in Russia. Those scientists came up with a separate government entity, really, to monitor permafrost, to track this information that would oversee a huge system, which would include some very complex and detailed monitoring, not just measuring temperature in the permafrost, but also doing the kinds of salinity monitoring and ice monitoring, all sorts of things. They were hoping for much more money and a much more independent structure, I would say. But ultimately, the government went for a system that would be controlled by the Climate and Weather Service. I think, at least they tell me, and I think that's, that makes sense, that this was done in order to roll out the system as quickly as possible. So Roskydomet really has the resources to start this. They might not be that familiar with permafrost monitoring, but they do have some soil monitoring that they do. And they have a research institute that oversees Russian research in the Arctic and the Antarctic. So they really have some capacity to do this. But then I think everyone kind of walked away a bit frustrated from what they got, but that that, I guess, happens quite often when it comes to national national systems, right? <laughs> yeah. I really hope they do start working on this and launch the system as soon as possible because the data will really be useful. And one point that I think is crucial that an expert makes in the story is I really wish that Russia would decide to share this data with other scientists too, not just keep it to ourselves, but really feed it into a global system which will make it that much more useful, really, for everyone. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Olga. Thanks, Sarah. Olga Dobrovidova is a science journalist based in Moscow. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Researcher Philippa Lentos is next. She's going to talk about regulating self-spreading vaccines. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Here's an idea. Wild deer can carry malaria. Let's make a malaria vaccine that works in deer and keeps them disease-free. And the vaccine can spread from one deer to the other so we don't have to find them all and give them shots. 
problem solved. Or how about this? There is an invasive lizard in Florida. They're bigger than all the natives. They're taking over, eating all the food, squeezing out the animals that we want to live there. Should we make a virus that spreads only among these invasives, leaving everything else alone? These are not new ideas. Self-spreading vaccines, self-spreading engineered viruses. These were conceived of long ago, but creating them and purposefully releasing them into the world has been deemed too dangerous, too risky by experts. But as Filippo Lenzos and colleagues write in an insight this week in science, research and funding for efforts like these involving self-spreading vaccines, engineered viruses, it's happening even today. Hi, Filippa. Hi, Sarah. These ideas have been around for decades. What prompted you to write about this now? There's a whole bunch of new research going on in this area. And so it seems like while it's been laying dormant for a while, essentially, there's been renewed interest in the last few years. Why are we saying, because I said it and you're eventually going to say it, self-spreading vaccines, self-spreading virus rather than transmissible or contagious? You can say both. Right. My preference is self-spreading because I think it's easier to understand. So we're talking about two different things here, self-spreading engineered viruses and self-spreading vaccines. What exactly are those? To me, self-spreading viruses and vaccines are basically lab-modified viruses that are developed to spread between hosts in the environment. So they spread much like diseases do, but instead of spreading diseases, self-spreading vaccines spread immunity. So that's a kind of an, an easy way to think about how they work. You're adding genetic material from a pathogen to a virus, and that added material will then stimulate some kind of antibody creation in the host. This is something we try not to have happen now. We don't want someone with a live virus vaccine, for example, to spread that to someone else for a number of reasons. That's right. What are some common scenarios for using this technology? The motivation behind some of the research that's going on right now is to use these kinds of vaccines for wildlife management. So essentially what you would try to do is protect against zoonotic diseases that sometimes leap from animals to people. These spillover events that we've heard so much about. Yeah. You mentioned this could be done with crops, you know, where the plants are already in the field and you want to treat them out there with a self-spreading vaccine, for example. But that's not what most of the current research or past research has focused on. The bulk of current research is focused on wildlife. And we've got some historical cases of attempts to do that. Back in the late 80s, we had Australian researchers that were developing different ways to try to, to either sterilize or kill wildlife. Similarly, in the 90s, you had Spanish researchers that were trying actually to do the opposite. They were trying to protect native wild rabbits using self-spreading viruses. So as you were saying in the introduction, this idea has been around for a while, but it's kind of come back now in the last five years. What are some of the really big concerns about developing and deploying this kind of intervention for wildlife management or for other reasons? 
The concern is that lab-modified self-spreading viruses are genetically too unstable to be used safely and predictably outside of contained facilities, and especially as self-spreading vaccines. Because once they're released, it's unlikely that you can remove them from the environment, and the consequences might be irreversible, and there's potential global spread. And so essentially the concerns are all around, you know, continued evolution and unwanted mutations. It's not a technological hurdle here that's preventing these things from happening. All of it is probably feasible, but it's really just not something we should do, at least according to the experts that looked at this problem in the 80s, in the 90s. And the regulators who looked at this too, that's right. So it's not the technological issue primarily. I think it is the fact that this will be entering a social context Mm -hmm. for human vaccines, definitely. But there are also concerns around wildlife management using self-spreading vaccines. Is it a practical intervention to try to vaccinate wildlife against something that may jump to people? Because we don't know which virus is going to jump to people Basically, the arguments behind or for wildlife immunization with self-spreading vaccines don't really hold up to scrutiny because the vast majority of viral species simply haven't been identified by science. So we don't know what we're up against. That's one of the arguments that doesn't hold up. Another is that, you know, viruses are really very dynamic. There's lots of mutation and there's lots of evolution going on. So of the viruses that we do know about, how are you going to prioritize the particular spillover risk that you're going to focus on. You know, what particular genetic event is it that's going to happen? In which particular wildlife species is it? At what locations? There are all these unknowns. And, you know, the final, I think, points is just the plain logistics of this. How in practice can you sustain and monitor the immune response to the vaccine in wildlife populations? How how are you going to know if it works or not? What approaches are people trying or should they be trying instead? Well, I think what most virologists would advocate for instead of self-spreading vaccines is just for surveillance at the human-animal interface, especially in hotspots. And once you identify a potential spillover, you need quick intervention. Rather than going into wildlife itself and trying to prevent a spillover. So to some extent, It seems not a very logical argument to be making, but the point is it is being made and it's being made with considerable funding. You know, there are heavyweight funders funding this research from the NIH, the EU Horizons Project to DARPA. It's still a very small community, but over the last five years, they've still had over a dozen scientific publications on this, and it's got a fair bit of coverage in popular science and in in media. And so the idea is seeded, it's being put out there, but you're not seeing the discussion within the scientific community about what are the anticipated benefits of this? Are they realistic? What are the potential harms? What are the potential risks? How do we weigh those? Yeah, it does seem like that discussion was had. People kind of agreed. And then it was forgotten about because it's been so long and it's kind of like zombie science. It's just going to keep showing up. People are going to keep proposing it and testing it out. And do we need to have these discussions again with virologists, with epidemiologists, with wildlife management? I think the answer really is to have a more open debate about whether we should be doing this kind of research at all. This is clearly a global 
concern. So we need to have a global governance effort. That means at the international level, we need to update existing regulations around this to reflect contemporary societal values. And, you know, these will have shifted in light of the COVID experience, for sure. Um, We also need national governments to clarify and, if necessary, update any relevant legislation and guidance they have in this area. And I think we need to ask more of the researchers and their institutions and the funders who are working on these approaches to actively articulate credible regulatory paths that they believe the safety and efficacy of self-spreading vaccines can be established. This seems especially important if the research is being done by one country with the aim of applying it in another country, you know, for a problem that isn't local to the researchers. Yes, we do see that happening. We do see, for example, funders in the United States funding research going ahead in Africa, for instance, saying this is going to be of huge benefit to them, but it is also at a risk to them. And so, you know, there are questions around outsourcing risks. There are questions about for whose benefit is this really? And I think that discussion needs to be brought more to the fore and more to the communal level and not be kept in these very specialized niches or groups. What are some of the safeguards that have been proposed or that people discuss as a possibility for something that's self-spreading? What the researchers are currently claiming is that there are approaches that exist that will suppress viral evolution so that these viruses that you release won't mutate in the environment. They also say that the viruses or the vaccines can be fine-tuned so that they only have predetermined lifetimes. Now, none of that is proved. Oh, I was going to say, how does that hold up? (laughs) Yeah, not very well, you know? Like, these are claims that are being made, but they've not been proved. They've not been evidenced. And I think there would be a lot of suppressed faces if they could evidence the fact that evolution doesn't continue with viruses. We're talking in the middle of an Omicron wave. We are, I think, all of us very conscious that viruses evolve in the wild. In my experience on social media, some of the wilder things I've seen are people saying, oh, well, the COVID vaccines, the coronavirus vaccines are spreading person to person. Obviously, that's not true, but it's not something we should avoid talking about. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think there would be an incredible backlash against any suggestion that we would introduce self-spreading vaccines for humans. We see that particularly with the anti-vaxxers movement, for instance. And what was interesting before this article came out in Science, I wrote with some of my co-authors another smaller piece for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, where our title, which was Scientists Are Working on Vaccines That Spread Like a Disease, What Could Possibly Go Wrong, attracted an incredible amount of clicks and attention. And that was primarily from the anti-vaxxer community. They thought from the headline that this could be something to back up their arguments. But of course, if you read through the article, that's not at all what it was. I have to admit that when I first read Self-Spreading Vaccine, I was like, you know, maybe. But as soon as I read your piece, I was like, oh, no, we do not want to give people vaccines that don't want them because they could have a reaction. They could have an immune compromise situation. There's so many reasons. 
That's right. There, there are more vulnerable communities out there, of course. But what is interesting, it is, it does seem like an inherently sort of attractive idea, especially when you think about it in terms of not humans, but wildlife. Could we just have let a virus loose on bats that then would have ensured the coronavirus didn't spill over into the human population? It kind of seems a very attractive idea at first glance. But the practicalities and the dangers are, are really big questions. Yes. I mean, there are safety aspects to this. There are ethical aspects to this. There are also security aspects to this. So um, it needs and warrants a much deeper discussion. And the steps that we're seeing currently where researchers are suggesting this is a possibility right now, I think are worrying when we don't have, when we haven't had that discussion. All right. Thanks, Philippa. Thanks, Sarah. It's been good to speak to you. Philippa Lentzos is a senior lecturer in science and international security in the Department of War Studies and in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine, and also co-director for the Center for Science and Security at King's College London. You can find a link to the Insight article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.